So a number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor, we had had, Megan and I had had a lot of the students over to our house for a class. And I noticed the week after we'd had a lot of the students over uh, for a class, I noticed that one of the students was using a phone that looked, a cell phone that looked a lot like an extra cell phone that Megan and I kind of had on reserve, kind of in case one of ours went dead. Now, it wasn't anything spectacular, it wasn't anything special, it was just an extra cell phone, but I noticed that it looked really, really, really familiar, you know. And so I went home that afternoon after I noticed the student using it, and I, I checked in the place that we kept the phone, and sure enough, it was missing. And so the next time that I saw him, I went and I asked, said, hey man, that's a really sharp phone you got there. It's a nice looking phone. Man, can I see that phone? I, I really like your phone. And of course, you can imagine how red he turned and how embarrassed he was. Because he knew immediately he'd been busted. He knew immediately that he had been caught. That he had taken from my home. He had taken something from my house that wasn't his. And this is somebody that Megan and I loved. And we loved deeply and had a very close relationship with. And you know, I can remember sitting down and talking with him about it. And as we sat down and we talked, I remember asking, man, why? Why would you do that? And what I remember telling him was this. You know, if you would have come and asked me for it, I would have just given it to you. If you would have come and you would have asked me for it, I didn't really need it. If you would have come and you would have sat down and you would have told me that you needed the phone and that the phone would have helped you, then I would have just given you the phone and it would have saved you from feeling guilty and it would have allowed me to feel like I was being a blessing to you. So in this process, you robbed me of the joy of being a giver. You put me in the position of having to be a confronter and instead you've been living two weeks feeling totally guilty because you've betrayed somebody that you've loved you know Jesus is going to tell a parable that's very similar to this Jesus is going to tell the story today of a group of people that attempt to take something by force attempt to take an inheritance by force that the master himself would have been willing to have given to them freely so would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 I'll tell you what, you, uh, you spill your water on yourself one time, and they take it away. <laughs> I'm up here, I'm thirsty, I got nothing. No, I'm good, man, I'm good, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I thought it would be in a sippy cup, I thought it would be in a sippy cup. <laughs> Megan swore that she was going to put a sippy cup up here. So, uh, anyway, spill your water on yourself one time, and they get you. All right, Matthew chapter 20. And by the way, I've seen, I've had college students, teenagers, everybody's got that clip and they've got their own music to it. They've got their own video. I mean, uh, Logan Schaefer, he's got like black and white, like slow motion. I mean, he's got the whole deal. So, all right, it's excellent. I just, I feel so loved by the congregation, you know, so loved. All right, Matthew chapter 21, would you stand with me? We're going to be in verse 33. We're going, to end to the, we're going to read to the end of Matthew 21 today. 
Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in, the season, in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. It's important for us to remember where we are. We're still on Tuesday of Passion Week, Tuesday before the Friday of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is still responding to the question that the temple leaders have asked him in verse 23. Jesus has been causing an uproar in the temple, and they have come to him in the temple, and they have asked him, who do you think you are? Where did you get the authority to do the things that you're doing? Where did you get the authority to teach the way that you're teaching? Where did you get the authority to go and to flip over the tables? Where do you get the authority to do all that you're trying to do? And so Jesus is in the process still of answering that question. He's in the series of three parables. And this morning we're in the second of those parables. And so Jesus tells the story of a very wealthy master. And he's using very rich Old Testament imagery, very rich Old Testament language. As a matter of fact, if you turned, you don't have to do this, but if you turned to Isaiah chapter 5 and you were to read the first five to seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5, you would find a very close parallel to what Jesus is writing there. And so Jesus is kind of rewriting that story a little bit. And so we, by looking at Isaiah 5 and seeing that parallel, we can see that the vineyard that Jesus is talking about is Israel. The tenets that Jesus is talking about is the leaders of Israel. The master that Jesus is referencing is God himself. And so Jesus is telling the story, he's telling the parable about a very wealthy master, a very wealthy ruler, a very wealthy landowner who goes to establish a brand new vineyard. And he goes and he, to establish this vineyard, he fronts all of the capital. He fronts all of the resources. He makes all of the investment himself. And now, before, you have to realize, for him to get any return on an investment, it's going to take four years 
four years, best case scenario, before any fruit starts coming in, before any money starts coming in. But this particular master spares no expense. He doesn't wait for the fruit to start coming in. He goes ahead now and builds the fence. He goes ahead now and builds the tower. He makes sure that it's protected. Already now, anticipating the fruit that is to come. Anticipating the, the, the vineyard's productivity. He puts the wine press in already. He's already fronting the full capital investment on the front end. This shows us that this, this merchant, this landowner, is an incredibly wealthy, an incredibly well-funded man that he can make this kind of investment, put in this kind of overhead, and wait this kind of period of time for any return on his investment at all. Not only is he going to do that, but he's going to entrust it to tenants, and then he's going to go and live in another town. He's going to go and live in another region. And so he's going to entrust it to tenants. They're going to care for the vineyard, and then when the fruit starts to come in, as the, as the vineyard begins to bear fruit, their responsibility will be to take a portion of that fruit, to take a portion of the crop, and to give to the master what he is owed, to give to the master what he is, what is rightfully his as a return on his investment, as a return for his kindness. And so we see that this master is benevolent, we see that this master is kind. We see that this master is very wealthy. We see a lot of, we're, we're, Jesus has given us a lot of details very quickly about the nature and the position of this particular master, about this particular investor. And so the master has waited an amount, uh, the, the right amount of time. And so the fruit has come in, has, has had adequate amount of time to come in. And so he sends his servants to go and to collect the fruit, to collect what is rightfully his, what is rightfully owed to him. And so he goes, the, his servants go, and they go to the tenants that he has put into to the place, the tenants that he has set up for success, the tenants that he has resourced, the tenants that he has so graciously provided for. And when his servants get to the tenants, what happens? They beat one, they kill one, and they stone one. Now what you need to understand is that in the Roman Empire, if you were a landowner, and you had tenants, and they refused to pay you what they owed you, you didn't get a six-month eviction notice, okay? You, 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 didn't, you didn't have all of the laws that we have here protecting the tenant. In the Roman Empire, if you owed rent and you outright refused to pay your rent, then what they could do is they could literally hire assassins to come and Al Pacino you off the land. They could make your, their problem disappear. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, you went away. Like, you ended up in a barrel or a foundation somewhere. Like, you got planted in the vineyard as fertilizer. You know what I'm saying? But the master didn't do that, did he? The master didn't plant them as fertilizer. What did the master do? The master sends more servants. He sends an even larger contingency of servants the second time. He sends servants to go and again to say, hey, give me what I am owed. Repay me what I have been so kind to give to you. Let me have my portion of the crop. Let me have my portion of the fruits. And it says that they did the exact same thing again. 
Now, maybe we would think after this time, the master, his patience would be up. After this time, the patience of the master, the patience of the landowner would run thin. This time, it's fertilizer, man. This time, it's Al Pacino. This time, it's the day of reckoning. But the master doesn't do that, does he? No, this time what the master says is, man, they know who I am. They know that I am a man that reaps where he does not sow. They know that I am a man that has been kind and generous. They know that I am a man that is worthy of respect. They know who I am. So I will send my son to them. Maybe they just could not respect a servant. So I will send to them my very son. And they will see my son who comes in my image. And that when they see my son, they will recognize and they will remember who I am. And when they see my son, they will remember the respect that I deserve. And in seeing my son, they will respect my son, and they will give payment to my son. But when his son arrives, they say to themselves, the master must be weak. The master must be sick. Or perhaps even the master is dead. So if we just kill the son... If we just eliminate the son, then we can have the son's inheritance. We can take the son's inheritance by force. The vineyard will become officially ours. We will not answer to anyone. We will have no master. We will be our own boss. We will be our own master. We will keep the full crop for ourselves. And so it says that they cast the son out of the vineyard and they slay the son. Do you see the picture here? Do you see the picture? God had given to his people everything and more. Everything and more. God had given to his people a promised land. He had entered into a covenant and he had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. You, are, you will reap where you do not sow. You will come into covenant with me and if you will love me and obey my commands, then I will protect you and I will provide for you. No nation, no matter how great, will come against you and stand. No famine will be great enough to outrun my provision. You will outlast them all. You will outstand them all, my provision, my protection will always be a hedge around you. Yet what did the people of God do? What did the people of God do? They spat in the face of their benevolent God. They spat on the very covenant that God had signed with them with his own covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. And they went and they chased after every golden God they could find. Worse yet, their kings and their priests led them there. Their kings and their priests, their leaders, would lead them into false worship. Their kings and their priests would create obstacles that would, that would, would stifle the worship of God in his house. Their kings and their priests were corrupt men and, and absolutely pagan men very often. And so what would God do? He would send his servants. He would send his servants he would raise up his prophets. 
And he would send them to preach. He would raise up, he would raise up Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And he would send them and he would preach and he would say, no, repent, repent, repent. Be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Be fruitful. Show the fruits of obedience. Show the fruit of godliness. Come back to the word of God. Submit to the authority of God. Remember the grace of God. Remember the mercy of God. Remember who your master is. Remember who your ruler is. Repent and come back. And how did the people of God receive the servants? They killed them, and they beat them, and they rejected them. In fact, Jesus is telling this in the outer, te- outer court of the temple. And Second Chronicles tells us that that is the very same location that the prophet Zechariah, as he was there declaring that the people of God, if they wanted to have any hope before the Lord himself, were to, was, were to repent and again to bear the fruit of godliness and obedience. The very the prophet Isaiah or Zechariah was commanded to be executed by the king with the approval of the priests and the people of God in the temple of God stoned Zechariah to death. Jeremiah was put in, st- in stocks. Isaiah was rejected. Prophet after prophet after prophet is raised up. And prophet after prophet after prophet is turned away and rejected. All the way up until the very final prophet. The prophet that has been most on the mind of Jesus lately. John the Baptist who ultimately is beheaded. And the priests and the temple leaders have rejected him too. And now... Now, God has sent his own son. God has sent his own son in his own likeness to come and to lay and to tell them that the kingdom of God has come. That if they will turn from their sin and entrust themselves to him, that they will be baptized in the baptism of repentance. That they will be received into the kingdom of God. And what have they done? They have rejected him yet. And by Friday, they will have murdered him. They will take him outside the city, just like the parable portrays. They will hang him on an old rugged cross, a cursed tree. And there he will be left to hang like a criminal, to die. You see, you you talk to enough people about Jesus... You're going to encounter somebody that comes to you and they want to portray this God of the Old Testament, this God of the Bible, as though he is a mob boss. They want to portray him as though he's this angry tyrant of the Bible that's always stirring up controversy and always stirring up riots and always inciting wars and battles. But can I tell you something? God, the God of the Bible is not an angry mob boss. The God of the Bible is a long-suffering master. He should have wiped us out long ago. He should have wiped his people out long ago. But again and again, generation after generation, he has been slow to anger. He has been patient and long-suffering with us. 
He has sent servant after servant after servant to preach and to say, repent and I will receive you back. Repent, turn from your wickedness and I will receive you. He even sent his own son, his own son, to come and to say, my father loves you. And because my father loves you, I am here. Come, repent, embrace me, accept me. And by accepting me, you will know firsthand the reconciliation of the Father. Now God is not a mob boss. God is the long-suffering master that is waiting for the return and repentance of his people. So don't let, don't let a professor... Don't let a person that's not familiar with the storyline of the Bible tell you otherwise. So Jesus looks to the, uh, to the temple leaders and he says, what do you think should happen? What do you think should happen? If, if this were you, see, see, most likely those, those temple leaders were wealthy men. And it's very likely that many of them owned rental property like this. It's very likely that many of them would have had tenant properties in, the, in a familiar way like this. So, so he's talking in a way that they can identify. And he's saying, like, if this was your story, how should this play out? And the way that they respond is fascinating because he says, the, they say, these wretched men should find an end that's just as wretched as they are. These wretched men should find a wretched end. That they can see that a day of reckoning is coming. They can see that a day of judgment where the master comes back and vindicates the death of his son, the death of his servants, and the wickedness of these tenants. They can see that a day of justice, a day of, of reckoning is on the horizon. See, this is all about fruit. We don't need to lose that. That when Jesus talks about fruit, particularly in Matthew, that Jesus is talking about fruit that reveals what's in the heart. That Jesus is talking about that the fruit on the outside, the fruit on the vine, reveals what's in the root. That the fruit that we can see with our eyes lets us know what's on the interior. So the fruit of the vineyard not being given to the master is indicative of what's happening in the vineyard. See, what... What the truth is, is those tenants bore fruit. Those tenants bore fruit. It was just a wretched fruit. It was a wretched fruit. They received the kindness of the, of the master, and they repaid the kindness with wickedness. They received the generosity of the master, and they repaid his generosity with greed. They received the provision of the master, and they repaid his provision with injustice. So there is fruit in the, uh, in the tenants, but it is a wretched, wretched fruit. See, I told you earlier, there, there, there are people who look at the Old Testament, they look at, at the God of the Bible, and they want to paint him out to be like this mob boss that's always kind of inciting these, these wars and these battles and all this kind of stuff. But you know, there's another kind of person too. And they look at Jesus in the New Testament, and they pervert who Jesus is, and they corrupt who Jesus is, and they do this by reinventing who Jesus is. They do this by reinventing who Jesus is. 
They reinvent Jesus to be this person that will offer you the kingdom but not require anything of you. They, they reinvent the gospel to mean that you can have all of the benefits of the kingdom of God, all of the benefits of the vineyard, but not have any kind of requirement of fruitfulness. Not any requirement of obedience. That no, that the, that the master is not going to require anything of you. So they, they believe that you can have the, the that you can have the benefit of the forgi- of forgiveness, but not be required to have any type of obedience. They believe that you can receive heaven and have heaven, and yet not in any way submit to the authority of the master. They believe that, that, that you can receive all of the devotion of the master, all of the kindness of the master, all of the benevolence of the master, all of the riches and the wealth of the master for all of eternity. This is what they believe. But at the very same time, they believe that they don't have to be devoted to the master himself at all. So let me ask you the very same question that Jesus asked them. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? If that's what you understand the gospel to be, if that's what you understand the, the, the truth of the Bible to be, the truth of the New Testament to be, uh, listen to what Jesus is saying. The vineyard must bear fruit. It must bear the fruit of the kingdom. You must give to the master what he is owed. You must bear fruit in your life. There is a day of reckoning that is coming. There is a day of justice that is coming. There is a day in which the master will return. And there is a day in which the master will return to avenge the death of his son and the death of his servants and the wickedness of the tenants. There is a day of judgment that is coming. What do you think will happen to those that have shown no submission, no surrender, no devotion to the master whatsoever? Give me, give me, give me, give me, but don't expect a thing from me. So Jesus, again, is turning the conscience of these leaders on themselves. We saw that last week, and somehow Jesus is telling these parables back to back. And man, it's like they're not really catching on quick. They're they're not not really seeing what he's doing fast. And so Jesus does it again. Jesus looks at him and he's like, do you not see? This is you. This is you. He does this. If you look in, uh, if you look in your Bibles, look with me to verse 42. I want you to notice that it's indented. Is your Bible indented there on verse 42? Offset. It says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, it's been confrontational. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So Jesus, I want you to know, it's significant that it's offset. Okay, that, but the reason that it's offset is that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. He's quoting from another passage. 
And he says, have you never read? Are you not familiar with the Bible? That's what he's saying. Are you not familiar with what God has said? Are you not familiar with, 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 uh, with the Old Testament? Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to experts in the law. He's talking to teachers of the Bible. He's talking to theologians. He's talking to seminary professors. He's talking to people that got it memorized. They haven't just read it. They've memorized it. They've taught it. They know it. They have committed their lives to it. Now, there's something that I want to point out to you that would be easy for, for the, uh, the naked eye to miss. Okay, Psalm 118, first of all, this is the exact same psalm that everybody was quoting, that was, everybody was shouting at Jesus when he's coming in on Palm Sunday. It's when everybody's shouting, Hosanna, 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 glory to God in the highest. That comes from Psalm 118. So Jesus is quoting, he's staying in Psalm 118, and he's quoting from it again when he said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that was, this was the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, now what is significant about Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is the last of what we would call the Hallel Psalms. It is Psalm 113 to 118. And I know you're thinking like, okay, thank you for that, big deal. It is a big deal, all right? Stay with me, stay, stay, stay with me. Are you with me? Stay with me, okay? This is cool, this is cool. So the Hallel Psalms, were psalms that you would sing and pray. They were psalms of thanksgiving that the Jewish people would sing and pray on their three biggest festivals and their three biggest celebrations, especially at the Passover. Guess what everybody's in town to celebrate? The Passover, right? And not only that, Every single Jew knew them by heart. You learned them when you were a kid. Like babies knew this stuff, okay? Like, like Gracie Kate would have been running around singing Psalm 118. Like she would have known that. Like kids her age in our church would have known Psalm 118. Like it would have been committed to memory from birth. Jesus is literally looking at them, and there are probably people in the temple court at that very point, uh, that very time, and and they are singing this psalm in the background to God. They could probably hear it. Not only that, it's like Jesus is looking to them and he's asking them, Have you never heard amazing grace? Have you never heard how great thou art? I mean, like, this is ABCs, man. He's not talking about the depths of theology. He's talking about the fundamentals here. He's talking about the basics. He's talking to experts in the law. I mean, this is like going to a mechanic. and say, hey, man, you know how to change oil? This is like, this would be like going to Paula Dean and saying, you know how to make pancakes. Can you cook up a grilled cheese? You know how to do that? When he goes... To the, to the experts in the law, and he says, have you never read Psalm 118? They're angry. What do you mean have I never read Psalm 118? I've sang it this morning. I quoted it with my kids at home. Are you crazy? And what Jesus is pointing out to them is you are blind. You are blind. You cannot see the truth, and the truth is right in front of you. 
You cannot see what is real, and what is real is right in front of you. You cannot understand what God has said, and you have committed what God has said into your mind. What God has said has come to fruition, and he is standing right in front of you. He said, you are the builders of Israel. You are the leaders of Israel. And there was a pile of rocks, and all of those that you rejected, it's the picture of the, 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 the builders are going through this, this pile of stones, right? And they're rejecting all the stones that aren't worth building with. They're casting out. They're casting out all of those that are not worth building God's kingdom with. And one of the stones that they cast out is the very Son of God himself. And Jesus is looking back at them. And he said, as blind as you are, you the builders of God's kingdom... You, the leaders of God's kingdom, you may cast me out. You may take me outside the city. You may put me on a tree. You may crucify me on a rugged cross. But let me tell you something. That one, the stone that you cast out, the stone that you have rejected, he will be vindicated. He will be raised. He will be resurrected. He will be made marvelous. He will be made wonderful in our eyes. And the very stone that you reject, God Almighty will make him the chief cornerstone of his very kingdom. He may not be good enough for your earthly temple, but God will make him the chief cornerstone of the kingdom of God that will endure forever. So you keep battling, you keep lying, you keep being blind, because I am going to establish a greater kingdom. He's saying, so it's going to be taken from you. The day of reckoning is coming, and the kingdom will be taken from you. You have come and you have tried to take it by force. You have tried to steal it. You have tried to do it by your good wisdom. You have tried to do it by your willpower. You have tried to do it by your morality. You have tried to do it by your law. You have tried to do it by inventing new laws. And the cornerstone has become a stone of offense over which you have stumbled and fallen. And as a result, the stone, the cornerstone for you will fall and it will crush you into a fine powder. It will be a stone of judgment. But for those, those others, but for a whole different group of people, it will, those who will bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, those tax collectors and prostitutes that you believe are far more wretched than you, I am establishing a greater kingdom I am establishing a kingdom that will outlast you, that will allow, outlast this temple, that will outlast all that you know and all that you see. And I will take the most wretched and I will make them the most fruitful. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus takes the most wretched and he makes them the most fruitful because he is the cornerstone that holds them together. That he is the rejected stone that was vindicated in the resurrection and in resurrection power and in resurrection glory. He takes all of us who are bogged down in the miry clay, all of us who are bogged down in our pornography addiction and in our, our despair and our anxiety 
anxiety, in our fear, in our anger, in our bitterness, bogged down in all the mess of life, and he rips us up out of the miry clay. He puts our feet on the rock, and he holds us together as the chief cornerstone. And can I tell you something? We will be fruitful because he will make us fruitful. We are not strong. He is strong. We are not good. He is good. But we can go to the nations because he will hold us together. He is the vindicated stone that God has made marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together, church.